Do different cultures produce different kinds of games? My name's Jonathan, and this is the Snakescast, the podcast for people who don't know as much about board games as they'd like to know. This week, we're joined by game designer Ignacy Trevicek, and we're going to see if the culture in his native Poland makes his games different from the ones created by designers elsewhere. Welcome back to the Snakescast, everyone. As I mentioned in our interview with Justin Gary a while ago, most of our guests at Snakes and Lattes have no idea what kind of person designs games, but something else I could have mentioned is that they often have no idea what part of the world these games come from, and sometimes they ask about that too. The truth is, they come from all over the world, but different parts of the world seem to have different styles of game design. We've spoken before about German and American-style games and how they differ. Today, we're taking a trip farther east to Poland, and Ignacy Trevicek is going to be our guide. Ignacy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm excited to get to talk to you. So let's begin with the stereotypes first, and then after that, we can talk about reality. The stereotypical American is supposed to be loud and boisterous, and Germans are supposedly very serious and unfriendly. Uh, what would you say is the popular false stereotype for Polish people? Oh, I, I don't know about stereotypes. You know the stereotypes. I'm just a regular pers <laughs> person from Poland, so you tell me, yes, you tell me. <laughs> uh, honestly, I don't know. This is the thing. I mean, I, I know that Canadians are supposed to be very uh, apologetic and uh, friendly and so on, but I, I'm, I'm not actually all that aware about what uh, the different sort of uh, Eastern European countries have for themselves. No, no. Now, these days, I believe that in Europe, you are quite renowned of... Uh, being very energetic as uh, communism is dead and uh, our country is growing like crazy. Many entrepreneurships from Poland, many young people starting the business. So we are now known in Poland, in Europe as a very young country who is struggling to grow as fast as possible. So that's our that's, stereotype right now. That's really interesting. Uh, would you say that that has any effect on what kinds of games people like to play in Poland? I don't know, but I can say that we all like trying to catch up with the Western world and we are very, you know, trying to everything now, right now. So we are playing games, we are traveling, we are doing all the kind of stuff that we missed for the past decades. And so that's, that's what I could say. Neat. Uh, are, are there any board game cafes in Warsaw? There is a one very famous cafe in uh, Krakow, uh, and it is really, really big, amazing, uh, very crowded. <laughs> People are reserving tables uh, in weeks before because there's so many people trying to weeks play games. Weeks before? Yes, really. It's, it's like super top-notch, uh, very trendy coffee in Krakow. Wow. So I'm going there in two weeks because uh, they have a special event with me, so I'm very excited to do that. That's amazing. Well, uh, Germans and Americans also have stereotypical game design philosophies. Uh, German games are supposed to be cold, calculating efficiency engines, while American games are supposed to be wild, random, violent games. Uh, do you lean toward one of those types? I believe that we here in Poland, or at least the, the best of our designs that were released worldwide, are um, quite interesting mix of these two types. Uh, in terms of naming of categorizing board games they are called hybrid games uh, right. and they they mix uh, ameritrash theme like sci-fi fantasy goblins orcs but they have a uh, lot of german influence of very interesting very subtle and elegant rules and uh, most renowned games from poland are these hybrid games uh, would you say that your own designs are very much influenced by your country's culture and history this need to catch up 
Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to design hybrid games as well because I have a very huge past in terms of role-playing games and the literature of fantasy and sci-fi, so I'm a huge Ameritrash fan. But in terms of games rules and in terms of games mechanism, I turn to like German games, so I try to mix water and fire and uh, design such a games. Neat. The, um, we'll come back to talking about video games and role-playing games a little bit later, but, um, I also wanted to ask about something else. Uh, obviously, the market for English language and German language games is really, really big. Uh, does the need to reach that market affect your design process in any way? At some point, it was, I believe, 2009, I discovered that if I do this thing that I love the most, that is uh, fantasy and sci-fi, and if I put my whole heart, I will find audience for these games instead. <laughs> so it was 2009 when I designed Stronghold. It was a huge, epic game. And before that, I would be afraid of uh, designing very complicated, very big game because I was I would be afraid of having market for this. But when I discovered that this is exactly what people in America like to play, I went in this direction, and now I'm super happy to produce very complicated, very big games, and yet to have an audience for that here in America. I suppose if you try to design a game for everybody, it won't really be anyone's favorite thing. But if you design something that you feel passionate about, then there's there's bound to be other people who will wind up feeling the same way, no matter what country they live in. Absolutely, I'm I I can call myself niche author, niche designer because I design <laughs> very narrow games, but yet because they are released worldwide, so people in France, in Spain, in America, in Canada, everywhere can buy them and play them. So this niche is pretty big, and it's enough to make for living for me. I remember seeing uh, a game that was, I believe the translated name was Q. It was a game about waiting in line for yeah. various different things that you need to get in a Soviet era, uh, communist country. And it was kind of darkly hilarious, but a lot, a lot of people, uh, just didn't quite get it. It seemed to be the, uh, uh, mostly for the, for the most part, people actually lived under those circumstances who appreciated it the most. Uh, have you ever played or published a game that was loved by your friends and family, but people from other countries just didn't seem to get why it was good because the cultural barrier was too broad to cross? I actually have a very interesting anecdote about that because I, a couple of years ago, I, Announced on my on my blog that I am going to start working on a party game that is set in a communism era in Russia <laughs> and in the institute, the Russian crazy engineers drink alcohol and try to design a machine, <laughs> and immediately it become a scandal. I had a very big problems on a Russian forums of board games, <laughs> Russian forums where people were saying that the designer from Poland is offending Russian players. <laughs> Uh -oh. And it was, I really, really had to, I was using a, a Russian language. I was trying to say sorry to them. So yes, it, it happens. And uh, I literally offended by accident the uh, Russian gamers. And then I had to say sorry that it was not to be offended. But well, it happened. Strange. I would imagine that they would be the ones who would be most in on the joke. They would find it funniest. Yes, but they didn't like that the, the person from Poland is making jokes about them. Oh, so there we go. So it's problem, okay to yes. make jokes about your own country, but not somebody yes. else's. Well, okay, I guess I can sort of see that. 
So, electronic role-playing games are said to have two major types. Japanese RPGs, which are all about characters and stories, and Western RPGs, which are all about exploration and freedom. But for quite a while, there's also been a third style of computer RPG, which you might call the Euro-style RPG, like the Gothic series and The Witcher. These tend to emphasize moral gray areas and permanent consequences for your actions, and they typically come out of Eastern Europe, especially the Czech Republic and Poland. Do you play electronic games, and uh, has your design style been influenced by electronic games? I try to play them, but I don't have enough time, so I have more video games on my <laughs> shelf than I played Oh boy, do uh, I in, know how that feels. Yes, but I, in my free time, I try to play them. I didn't finish Witcher 3. It's, it's too big for me. It's and so they, huge. Yes, they put a lot of effort in that game. So I'm <laughs> still, still in the middle. But yes, uh, of course, I, I'm familiar with these games. You know, I grew up doing role playing games. Uh, actually, my company, Portal Games, started in 1999 as a role playing game company. So, even though I'm not doing video games, I was very deeply involved in role-playing games like a pa- paper ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, we released two big major role-playing books. That was One was called Neuroshima Role-Playing Game and the other one was Monaster Role-Playing Game. And both of these games were very dark, uh, very serious, not in the style of Dungeons and Dragons, just, you know, going to the dungeon and killing monsters. No, no, no. It was completely something different. And I can tell you that Polish way of Playing and seeing role-playing games is super different. Back then, many, many years ago, we invited, for example, to Poland for the big Polish convention, Mr. James Wallace, who was back then ah. the publisher of Warhammer role-playing game. And mm-hmm. we talked a lot about how we play Warhammer and how they in United Kingdom play Warhammer. And there was something like Polish school of playing and Polish school of designing role-playing games. We are very dark society and we have this very very interesting point of view on adventure scenarios settings and um, you know my game that we released many many years ago monastire it was something if you took uh, three musketeers by alexander dimas mm-hmm. and do a crossover with lovecraftian so you have a uh, musketeers it's like france 19 uh, 1770s but then you have a horror dark magic occultism and all that kind of stuff so that's what We like here. Okay, that's enough broad cultural discussion, I think. Uh, I'd like to talk a little more about your games and your personal design philosophy. Your blog is called Board Games That Tell Stories. Uh, That right there makes a pretty strong statement about what's important to you in game design. So why is narrative so important to you in games? Why not just design abstract games like Uno or Blockus? So as I mentioned a few minutes before, I started with role-playing games. Uh, back then in the high school, I was uh, one of these geeks that we know from the movies and sitcoms. <laughs> yes, reading books and um, playing some video games. And then from these books, I learned that there is something like role-playing games, a paper role-playing games like Warhammer, like Cyberpunk and other Call of Cthulhu and many other role-playing games. And I went very deeply into that. And then uh, after I dropped college, being super honest, <laughs> and I founded company, I went for designing role-playing games. And these stories, these scenarios, these characters were very interesting for me. And then uh, the, the company was growing and we moved to the board games. But still, you know, I have 20 years of experience uh, creating scenarios, creating characters, creating adventures. And mm. these stories is all that drives me. And I have a 
hundreds and hundreds of books at home and I'm reading them and I love all about stories. One of the uh, problems with narrative in board games is that the players have to be able to make choices, meaningful choices, or else they're not playing. But sometimes those choices don't make for good storytelling. How do you, rec- uh, how do you reconcile the player's freedom to choose with the need for a good story that makes sense in a board game? Yeah, so this is a very interesting topic. And uh, at this very moment, as you know, I'm working on the first Martians. This is a game that is set on the Mars. And this is exactly what, what I'm working on. So I'm mm-hmm. giving players some situation. For example, solar panels have some problems. Your energy is lower. And then players have to make a decision, but they don't know exactly what will the out, what the outcome will be because they may go there and clean the solar panels to have this energy. Or they may say we have no time for that because we have other objectives. Maybe the solar panels will clean by themselves because of the wind. So giving players interesting choices that will build their narration and that will build story is a hard task, but it's very interesting. The same in the Robinson Crusoe, my older mm-hmm. game, when players, um, for example, explore the island and find the old hut. And in this hut, they draw a card and this card says you in the middle of the forest, you find an old hut. And in this hut, you can find a skeleton with the old book. Do you want to take it? And this is very interesting for players because on one hand they want to take something because it's for free, but on the other hand they see on the same card information, if you take this a diary, you will discover the past of the, um, the inhabitants and something different will happen. So they will discuss if they want this diary or not and what will happen. So, you know, it's very, very interesting and very hard to, to, do, to do that. But if you make players immerse in the story and if you give them the the choices that will have consequences later on in the different rounds later and later and then it will be amazing story for them that was actually one of my favorite things about robinson crusoe the uh it's 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 difficult to use literary devices in a board game situation in a lot of cases but those event cards the way that you know you draw a card then you make a choice and depending on what you choose the card goes to another place in the game and can come up again later that's foreshadowing and that's a literary technique that I love. And seeing that in a board game was, was kind of incredible. That was exactly very precise design decision that when you read a book, in, in the first chapter something happens, you are pretty sure that in the chapter number three or in the chapter number five or in the chapter number seven, something will come up connected to this even from the chapter one, right? And mm-hmm. the, the whole... The whole design decision for me was to make possible that if players do something in the round one or round two, there will be consequences in the round five or seven or nine, and that they know that, that something will come up later. And uh, this is what builds tension and what builds uh, this connection between players and the story. And in a way, that also sort of brings out that dark Eastern European sort of feel of consequences for actions, the fact that everything you do is going to ripple outwards, and you can't just take things for free all the time. There, there, there's, there's going to be bad things that will happen later if you try to take advantage too much of the situation. Yeah, absolutely. There's this, this famous card that everybody quotes on Twitter, on Facebook, that, oh, you just found a lot of bamboo. Do you want it for free? And if you take it, this bamboo is very crappy wood pieces. So if you build something from this bamboo, sooner or later it will be destroyed. But yeah, we always ignore it. that card. That card yeah. comes just like, forget it. We're not using that bamboo. No way. 
Um, some of the most beloved story games out there are also among the more complicated ones. Uh, there's a reason why Robinson Crusoe isn't on the shelves at Snakes and Lattes. It's really difficult to teach. Um, but it's it, because of the fact that that complexity is in there, it's able to tell these rich, deep stories. Uh, same thing with something like Dead of Winter. That that game is amazing at telling stories, but it is difficult to teach. Do you think that a good story requires complicated rules, or can you still tell a good story with a simple game? I hope I can do, or different designers can do. I see there's an amazing trend lately that uh, so many players are looking for the games that tells a very good story. So there's mm-hmm. more and more designers working on this topic and more and more designers trying to come up with some very interesting idea. I haven't played yet because it will be released um, on Kickstarter very soon, but there's a game that is called This War of Mine, based on the very oh, famous yes. video game. I know the designer, this is my friend Michael Oraj. I haven't played the prototype yet, but he promised to me that this game will be, you open the box and you immediately can play. And yet you will be telling the story. So I'm super eager to see what he did. I know there is amazing game, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, mm-hmm. with the amazing, very, very super rules actually, because you just open the box it's and true. you just can play. And it's amazing, immersive, and at this very moment I'm uh, tweaking with this mechanism. I'm thinking about something uh, designed by me, but with um, a few tweaks. So this engine is very interesting. Sherlock Holmes, Console Detective. Oh yeah, I, I can't wait this, to see what you're going to do with that. Yes, this is this this has potential. So I believe that Robinson Crusoe showed to the whole industry that there's so many players who are interested in great stories in the games, not only Euro games, not only dry Euro games. And now there's so many designers going in this direction and coming up with amazing ideas. So I'm looking forward for new designs. Wonderful. Uh, to our audience, I'd just like to say, if you're a fan of narrative and board games, you need to check out Ignacy's blog. It's called Board Games That Tell Stories. You can also buy his book by the same title, which includes a lot of the best articles from the blog, as well as entries from beloved designers like Antoine Bauza, Rob Davio, Seiji Kanai, and many others. The links are in the description, and I highly recommend them. Um, Ignacy, are there any Thank other you. games coming out soon with your name on them that we should be watching for? At this very moment, I'm working on first Martians day and night. And you mentioned the Martian later. Yeah, yeah. Is, is that uh, Robinson Crusoe, but with, but on Mars? In space, yeah, that's true. So we are recording, this is Sunday evening in Poland, and I just finished two tests today, and this day I had two tests, so whole weekend I was working, and we will see. I have a couple of months yet to finish the game, but this is my grail game for this year. Okay, that'll be it for this week. Do you like these interviews we're doing lately? Let us know. Tweet us at SnakesCast or post your thoughts on the Snakes and Lattes Facebook page. Nasi, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. SnakesCast is produced by P.T. Douglas. Music is provided by Ben Sound. The opinions expressed on the show belong to the people in it and not the company behind it. Ignacio will be back again next week to talk about a shockingly minimalist game design called Tides of Time. Until then, thanks for listening. Game on. Game on.